0: Because mm-hmm. the other thing that you do is you totally throw out your sleep schedule, and your melatonin doesn't know when it's meant to be up or when it's meant to be down because you've just had these two days that have are way out of schedule and the body's rhythms get thrown out.
1: Welcome to How do You Feel, a podcast with info and Inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition, and mindset. I'm your host Casey Zavaleta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hello, welcome to How Do You Feel. I am recording from a brand new office because we successfully moved into our new house yesterday. Moving is always a shit show, but I am happy to report that everything went smoothly and we're settling in great. Moves are so exciting. They're such a chance to rethink your life and rethink all of the habits, the things that you've fallen into, routines of based on how you grocery shop, how you commute to work, the organization of your house. So it really feels like a fresh start. It's a really exciting time as we settle in. This is a very special week to me. It is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. If you've been following along through my social media or the podcast, you know that I suffered from an eating disorder for about seven years. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on my feelings about it right now on this intro, but make sure that you're following me on Instagram because I'm definitely going to be having conversations and sharing a lot of info and thoughts about disordered eating and body image this week. And then that's all going to culminate in an event that All Day Fit is holding called Finding Food Freedom. We're putting on this event as a space to have a conversation about these topics of disordered eating and negative body image and then also eating disorders. We're going to have a therapist there who specializes in these topics and she is someone that I really hope to have on the podcast and get to interview. So if you're not in Toronto or you're unable to come to that event, then you still get to hear from her because she has some really wise words to share on those topics. The theme of this podcast is neither of those things. It is sleep. Sleep is one of my favorite favorite topics right now when it comes to health and wellness and I found Ben Pratt who is a sleep educator and expert on sleep to come on the podcast today and share tons of amazing information about it. Ben Pratt is the program coordinator for the leading online training provider Nordic Fitness Education. He's actively worked in the fitness industry since 1995 and within the field of fitness education as a tutor and international presenter since 2003. Amongst numerous vocational fitness certifications, he received a Bachelor of Science in Sports Science and a Master's of Science in Holistic Nutrition. Ben is the author of more than 15 health, fitness, and nutrition certifications, the most recent of which is the Sleep Recovery Specialist online certification that offers fitness professionals an exciting niche to support clients achieving their goals. It was a blast talking to Ben for this episode. He signed on all the way from Ireland to share with us. So I hope that you guys enjoy my conversation with Ben Pratt. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on and get the chance to talk with you today.
0: Well, thank you so much, Casey, for uh, inviting me to speak and to uh, have some time uh, to discuss one of my favorite side hustles, that is sleep.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. I have been diving into sleep a lot over the last couple of months and I've been waiting to have someone on that I felt like was an expert in sleep, someone that can really talk about a lot of these things and a lot of these questions that I still have because (laughs) sleep is such a massive subject. I feel like I read one book and I thought I had a grasp on some things and then I read a couple more books and I realized how much I don't know. I mean, it's just such a massive topic.
0: Oh, I can completely concur with that. Certainly, uh, as I've been studying sleep over the last few years, the one thing I realized the most was was the size of the scientific literature is almost endless. And uh, therefore, that makes it really difficult to get a grasp of uh, everything that's in the area. But at the same time, um, like all areas of science, you have to come down to some nuggets in the end and some, some key points that you can take away and act upon. And, and that's what I've tried to do over the last few years with regards to sleep.
1: Yeah, definitely. I want to know, first of all, just why you care about sleep. Um, if mm-hmm. there's a personal story as to why you decided to learn more about it and start educating people about it.
0: Well, that's a great question. I would say there's not really a, a real driving, motivating, exciting story behind this, unfortunately. However, I, I've been working in the health and fitness space too long now, as uh, 25 plus years. And uh, with that Well, I certainly have found that my interest in areas has gradually grown and increased. So I started purely interested in fitness. I then progressed through into looking at nutrition in a big way, and I, I got a master's degree in nutrition. And that degree that I took was a holistic degree. It looked at the broader picture rather than individual nutrition. And that enabled me to have a better understanding of the systems of the body, how they work and operate. And so it made me consider other lifestyle factors much more than I had previously. And in more recent years, particularly the last three, four years, I've really started to, to research and study sleep a lot because of the impact that it has upon many other things that health and fitness professionals often focus upon. And so personally, myself, I've always been a pretty good sleeper. You know, getting maybe seven to eight hours of sleep a night hasn't been too much of a challenge, except when my children were very young. Obviously, uh, when you have young kids, they tend to wake you up.
1: You have a lot of kids, right?
0: I have five kids, yes.
1: Five, yeah, that'll, most of them that'll definitely get into your sleep.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Well, most of them are all grown up now, so that was years gone by. Uh, mm-hmm. My youngest is currently seven, so, so it's been a while since I've had to deal with sleep disruption because of young children. All my kids sleep pretty well for the, for the most part. However, as an aging individual, I'm now into my 40s, I've started to become aware that whilst I might get seven or eight hours of sleep in a night, quite often I wake feeling tired, feeling unrefreshed. And that, perhaps a few years ago, started me to begin to look more into, well, why do I not feel refreshed even though I'm getting the quantity of sleep that I wanted? And so being that sort of holistic practitioner, it caused me to go digging around looking for the root cause. You know, I like to go to the source.
1: Yeah, I released an episode about sleep, um, episode 31, so a couple of weeks ago. And I concentrated a lot on quantity of sleep and how important it is to make sure that you're getting a full eight hours of sleep versus six. But quantity definitely isn't the whole story. And I've had a lot of clients and listeners asking, okay, well, I'm getting eight hours of sleep, but like you're talking about, they have a similar story. I'm just not waking up feeling refreshed. So there's something going on with quality. Could you speak a little bit to the importance of sleep quality as well, and that it's not just quantity?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I appreciate that. I I did get a chance to listen to your past episode. I think you did a great job there, Casey. You picked up on a lot of very uh, key and important points. The guidance is that all adults, no matter What age between 18 to 65? All adults should be seeking between seven to nine hours of sleep. So we sometimes sit on that eight hour sort of principle thinking that that's where it should be. But actually there's a bit of a range there. The minimum should be seven plus. And uh, as adults, that's what we should be seeking. Now, as I've sort of mentioned, and as you've alluded to there, that you've had clients in this in this ballpark space. Uh, People often are achieving the minimum amount, but then still feel pretty tired, pretty worn down and run down the next day. And that alludes to other aspects of sleep. Now, sleep itself goes through changes and phases throughout the night. It's not just a constant state of unconsciousness. There are levels of sleep, so to speak, from levels one through to four. And it goes from lighter to transitional sleep and into deeper phases of sleep. And each of these different phases of sleep changes and alters several times throughout the night. And so, for example, in a normal sleep pattern, somebody might go through three to four deep phases of sleep and possibly four to five lighter phases of sleep as the night progresses from the start to the end. Mm. And these different phases of sleep help us to feel either more or less restored. The deeper phases of sleep are generally known to bring about physical restoration. They help the body to repair, regenerate cells and tissues, and to restore the energy that we need for the next day. Those lighter and transitional phases of sleep, particularly dream state sleep, helps to restore our nervous system and our mental faculties so that we can stay focused the next day. So say, for example, somebody wakes up and they feel kind of tired. Well, in that type of scenario, it's possible that they didn't get enough of the deeper phases of sleep to enable their body to be restored and regenerated. Perhaps they wake the next day feeling a little moody and irritable, and they find it difficult to stay focused. In those kind of scenarios, it's possible that they didn't get enough of the lighter dream state sleep that they needed in order to help their mental faculties come back in line for another day. So just being aware of how you feel may give you an indicator as to where you've slept well and where you have not slept well in terms of phases of sleep.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I guess the follow-up would then just be, if people feel like their sleep quality isn't good, what can they do? Like what are the top things that they can do to improve their sleep so they do feel refreshed the next morning?
0: Wow. I mean, that's quite a big question and there's an awful lot we could do. I think one of the first things I would do is, is help people to understand if sleep quality is really an issue. And so there is a, a, a sleep questionnaire you can come across fairly easily on the internet. If you went looking, it's called the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. And if people looked up that questionnaire, they'd be able to go through and answer the questionnaire effectively and determine where their sleep quality actually is. And if the the questionnaire is indicating that there are aspects of sleep quality that are not in sync with what they should be, then at least you know what areas to target. Now, for example, that questionnaire identifies things like sleep latency, which means how long it takes you to drop to sleep in the first place, it identifies sleep efficiency. Efficiency is to do with the total number of hours in bed versus the actual time spent asleep. So for example, if somebody was in bed for seven hours, but only slept for five and a half, then there's going to be a percentage efficiency there as a result of that. They also look at sleep disturbances or how many times you're woken during your hours of sleep. And then it also identifies daytime dysfunction as part of that questionnaire. So how you are impacted the next day after a certain amount of sleep or lack of sleep. So by using that questionnaire, we can immediately begin to identify where the weakness is in terms of sleep quality. So say, for example, somebody has several disturbances a night. So they are aware that they wake up two, three, four times a night. Well, in that case, at least we now know what it is we're trying to address. We're trying to address any issues that might lead to awakening experience, So we could be looking at things like noise in the house. We could be looking at things like the need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, which is another common one. And can we begin to take measures that would prevent that happening? Can we quieten things down? Could we use some earplugs? Could we make sure they don't drink fluids too close to bedtime? Another common one that's often overlooked is actually the bedroom environment. In particular, the products that we sleep on and that keep us warm. You'll often hear in sleep circles, they talk about keeping the bedroom at a nice, tidy sort of 15 to 17 degrees Celsius, which is sort of getting into the high 60s, to early 70s Fahrenheit. And at that nice ambient temperature, the room can feel good, but then actually underneath your blankets that you're sleeping in, you can, you've got this microclimate that can actually get quite hot and humid if you're not using the right blankets or the right sleepwear in order to stay cool. So it's important that microclimate is also sufficient so you don't get humid.
1: That's such a good point. I feel like nobody thinks about that. They say, oh, yeah, I love to have the fan on and I love to keep my room really cold. And then they're buried under all of these blankets that are actually so warm under there. So their body temperature is, in fact, a lot warmer than maybe they're thinking that the room is making it. a great. Absolutely.
0: Point. <laughs> and And having a cooler room with warmer blankets tends to lead to better sleep. But one of the key things to drop the sleep is we must have a lowering of body temperature. If we don't get that drop in body temperature, which is only a small amount that it goes down, but that drop initiates sleep, and we must keep a relatively constant body temperature in order to stay asleep. Whereas if we start to get very stuffy and hot and begin to sweat, well, that tends to disrupt our sleep. So it's good to have blankets that keep us warm, but they need to be breathable. There needs to be some airflow. If there isn't airflow in that microclimate, then chances are that humidity is going to cause us to be disturbed. And then we begin to lose some of that key time of sleep quality, particularly in those lighter phases.
1: That makes total sense. That's good advice. I want to transition a little bit and talk about why you prioritize sleep even before diet and exercise when it comes to health and then also optimizing performance.
0: Okay, that's another good question. We often hear people talk about these pillars of health and usually... Exercise and diet are numbers one and two. Uh, In my book, I put sleep as number one, although I have to confess I didn't always. I was very much in the the normal camp of exercise and diet being those important pillars. But the more I've thought about sleep, I realize it actually precedes both of those other factors. And there's two reasons for this. The first reason is because of the total amount of time we spend sleeping across a 168-hour week. You now, if we're sleeping the minimum, we're getting our seven hours a night that is 49 hours per week, which is about 29 percent of the total time of our full week. Now if we then look at exercise, let's say we have a client or we're working with somebody who's incredibly keen on exercise, and they're doing one hour a day for seven days a week, even if they're that committed, that seven hours of activity each week still only accounts for four percent of the total weekly time. So it's a relatively small percentage of time invested. I would say a similar thing with food. If you were to break up meals and snacks, probably people might invest an hour to an hour and 15 with their food intake in terms of preparation time, eating and all those other elements. And that still is only four to 5% of total time. So if we look at it purely from that time component, you can see that sleep, because it takes up so much more of our time, should have a higher place in terms of its prioritization. Does that make sense, the first reason?
1: Yeah, definitely. That makes so much sense. I think that we forget how much time our body spends asleep. And of course, we wouldn't have evolved to sleep for so long and spend so much of our time unconscious if it wasn't benefiting us to do it for that long, right? So, yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think it's sometimes because we're in a state of unconsciousness in terms of our conscious mind, we feel that therefore it's not that important because I can't control it. Well, You know, that couldn't be further from the truth. There's so much we can do to manage our sleep. The second reason, however, is what happens to us if we remove one of these pillars. Now, let's say, for example, we take away a good quality diet and we start eating a junk food diet. Well, that poor quality diet, whilst undesirable, is still going to take days, weeks, and months before the negative impact is truly evident. If we then did the same with, for example, with exercise, we'd be in the same boat. It's going to take weeks and weeks before we truly start to see the impact of no activity. Whereas if we sleep just one night poorly, let's say we get five hours and we normally get seven, immediately we sense and feel the negative impact upon that both physiologically, emotionally, and mentally. And that rapid impact would suggest that it is a higher priority for our health than those other things that take time to begin to have a negative impact.
1: That makes so much sense. Why, if you're underslept, could it actually be damaging to the system to hit the same high-intensity workout that you normally would?
0: As I think about that particular topic, we can't just talk about sleep only. We also have to talk about stress and stress load because these things are kind of intertwined to some degree. Now, obviously, as much as we love exercise and it has lots of beneficial effects, exercise itself is a stressor it's physically challenging to the body. And if you just think about your physical performance levels at the start of a one-hour workout versus at the end of a one-hour workout, usually towards the end, we notice a decline in our performance. We're starting to fatigue. Our resilience against the stress begins to lower. And so we technically get less and less fit throughout the hour. We're getting worse off. Does that make sense? And yeah, then,
1: on a micro level, for sure. Yeah. On a
0: micro level, absolutely. And then the idea is that over time we get fitter by allowing recovery between exercise, our body supercompensates and gets a little better. So we apply the same stimulus again and it requires these multiple stimuli over time with adequate recovery, I stress, in order to ensure that we get fitter. So let's say we're applying too much exercise and not getting enough recovery, which is often what's happening. People are exercising, Then, all the other aspects of their life that are preventing good recovery could be high deadlines at work that are really driving their stress levels up at work, busy family life, short sleeping hours, a poor quality diet. All of these other elements are feeding into this lack of recovery. Poor sleep is indeed one of those high stressors that prevents the body recovering. So, if that's the person that we're working with, or if that's us ourselves, the chances are that our levels of recovery between workouts are not sufficient enough. And yet we might then go a day or two later and try to apply the same exercise again, but our body's only 50% recovered from the last workout. Now, once we start to see it like that, we recognize that we might create a plan in our head and say, right, this is my plan. I want to do this workout. But that plan isn't taking into account the fluid adjustments that the body has to go through and that it's still fatigued from the previous workout. Mm-hmm. Now, we could get a little bit more in depth here and specifically talk about hormones that occur during that recovery process and how they can be altered through a lack of sleep. Would you like to go down that road?
1: Yeah, I would love to.
0: So you, I think you, you mentioned this reasonably well in your, uh, in your previous podcast on the subject, but you talked about melatonin and the importance of melatonin as a sleep hormone. Now, it's kind of funny that it's called the sleep hormone because the real role of melatonin is not about maintaining sleep. It's just about initiating sleep. So as we get into our evening, melatonin levels, which are usually low in the day, rise. And they rise to a level that starts to make us feel tired. And so it helps to initiate sleep because it brings about this feeling of of I need to rest my body. However, melatonin staying high doesn't necessarily stop us from waking up at the night. So people who wake up two or three times a night will still have high melatonin. So it isn't the hormone that keeps things stable during the night. It's just the hormone that initiates that sleep. Then as we get to the morning, melatonin levels crash and they drop down so that we can wake. But there's another hormone that brings that about. And there's a hormone called cortisol, which is classically known as our stress hormone. Now, during nighttime as we sleep, cortisol levels in a healthy individual will be low. And they will stay low until the early hours of the morning when they will start to rise. And the reason they rise is they, they are the antagonist to melatonin. And so they drag melatonin levels down and they rise to increase our energy and alertness ready to wake. And so they are the hormone of the morning. It's the hormone that keeps us alert and awake. Now, there's two other important hormones in this discussion around stress. One is growth hormone, which is a very important hormone, as you can imagine, for stimulating growth, cell regeneration, and things like that, which is important for getting over a workout. And 70% of our growth hormone is released in the first one to three hours of sleep. That is an important factor, particularly if we don't sleep well in those first one to three hours. And then the last hormone to consider is testosterone. Testosterone in both men and women has its peak in the early hours of the morning. And then it gradually drops throughout the day. So that's what we would refer to as a normal rhythm. Now, when we then look at sleep and we discuss, well, well, let's discuss how that is altered from a lack of sleep and how that might impact our ability to train on a subsequent training day. First of all, for somebody who regularly sleeps poorly, we're going to find that cortisol levels in the morning are not high, they're abnormally low. And so therefore, we wake and we don't have the surge of energy that we should have in the mornings. We start to feel sluggish because cortisol's job is to break down stored carbohydrates and fats and to release it into the system to have energy. And now we don't have that. And this lack of energy in the morning makes us feel tired and sluggish. And so what do people do to counteract that? They go looking for a strong cup of coffee, which gives the adrenal glands a hefty kick and releases more cortisol to help get that energy back that we are lacking. The other thing that happens with poor sleep is we end up with low testosterone. And that testosterone rising in the morning isn't quite at the high point where it should be. We also find if people are disrupted during that first half of the night, that growth hormone levels can become significantly lower. And so the restoration of the body through the stimulus that growth hormone provides doesn't occur to the same degree and rather than getting this nice 70 percent daily growth hormone rise at nighttime, we end up with lots of small little peaks during the day and so we don't get this two to three hour restoration period where cells and tissues are regenerating and so that's lacking the next day as well then the last thing to consider is that just one night sleep deprivation has been shown to cause between 25 to 35 percent increase in insulin resistance now insulin we probably relate to diabetes and a problem with diabetes but if someone is insulin resistant or more insulin resistant then the body is finding it difficult to drive energy that's in the bloodstream into the tissues to be used for exercise so if i've slept poorly i get up and have my breakfast because i'm probably craving some carbs because my energy is low I'll have my breakfast, but this higher level of resistance to insulin is preventing that energy getting from my bloodstream into my muscles. So I now go to train and let's just put this into context. This is all the things that have just occurred. Cortisol is low. So my energy is low. Testosterone is not as high as it should be. So the response to exercise isn't going to be as strong. I've had low growth hormone release during the night. And so the muscles have not fully restored and have not replenished the way they should have. And now I also have higher insulin resistance, and that insulin resistance is preventing energy from the food I've eaten getting into the muscle tissue. And then I go into the gym and say, despite all of that, I am going to stick to my damn plan and I'm going to exercise all the same. Now, when you put all of that into context and you realize biochemically what is happening in the body, it doesn't make a lot of sense just to go in there and hammer it out in the gym. Sometimes we need to dial it back to give the body a chance to continue its recovery rather than to apply a stressor that it isn't prepared to receive once again. So I know that was a long answer, but hopefully you can see that all of those components have to come together effectively in order to be ready for the next training session
1: wow that's fascinating that insulin resistance piece i hadn't heard of before but it's so interesting because being sleep deprived also a, makes you hungrier right it increases your appetite so Absolutely. you're eating more but your body has less of an ability to actually use that energy that is so fascinating i feel like that must be a big part of why trying to train when you're sleep deprived doesn't work right you just can't achieve the same level of performance
0: no absolutely and if we begin to look at the chronic effects of of insulin resistance on people who don't sleep well there is without doubt there's been so many studies done on this showing that there's a regular upward trend in people who don't sleep well with regards to obesity and diabetes for example uh, somebody who's only sleeping five to six hours a night by the time that adult reaches 27 they are going to be six to seven times more likely to have a higher BMI and to be overweight. And that's only a few years. you know we're only talking about less than a decade of regularly poor sleep, and you're likely to be more obese and overweight because of this growing effect of insulin resistance upon the body and storing fat in the tissues.
1: Wow, so you can imagine the effect that that would have when people do it for decades and decades, which we see all the time, especially in with people in these, high-pressure jobs and executives that aren't prioritizing their sleep at all.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there is this pressure, isn't there? There's almost like a badge of honor of, I'm busy all the time. Look at how productive I am. The reality is is you can only sustain that so long before the, the effects on your health start to become evident.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As a trainer, I always advocate that my clients and my listeners follow some kind of training program because I believe that it's so beneficial to be able to systematically, progressively overload your body, to teach yourself these skills, um, and to track your progress from week to week. I find that to be really encouraging for people in the gym. But obviously, we're talking about how life happens, and sometimes you haven't slept well the night before, so you do need to modify your training program what would you say are some of the signs that somebody needs to maybe modify what they had planned or what's on their training program for the day? And then what would you do to modify that program?
0: Some great follow-up questions to our discussion we've just had on stress there. So yeah, absolutely. The first thing I would do is get people, and they don't have to make this too formal, but just to to self-rate themselves in terms of their energy levels out of 10. Where do I feel in the morning? Uh, and give yourself maybe an hour or so to be up and actually become alert a little bit before we do this. So, so what are your energy levels out of 10? How is your ability to stay focused and to stay on task? Rate that out of 10. And then what is your enthusiasm for exercise? So how keen do you feel to do some exercise today? And if you rate each of those out of 10, then we, we can generally say that if we are falling below an average of all three scores, so a total of 21 and down, So an average of seven out of 10, if we're falling below that, then probably this is a day when we might need to adapt our training accordingly. All right, so that's quite a simple guide. But it allows people to then just rate themselves, where am I at? Where's my energy, my focus, and my enthusiasm for exercise? If I'm not feeling it today, then the reality is we probably should listen to our bodies and adjust appropriately in order to ensure that we can still do a workout, but that that workout isn't going to add the same level of stress load but actually might be helpful in terms of recovering. Now, there's a few things we can do with that. So let's say we have rated ourselves six across the board. We're a little bit off off form today. Well, the first thing I would do is say, well, what type of training are you doing? Is it a cardiovascular workout or is this a resistance training workout or is it a combination? Let's say we're doing cardiovascular work. Then the things that we would focus on would be potentially decreasing our percentage max heart rate training zone. So if we had intended to go in and to train at 75% of our maximum heart rate, We might drop that by 10% down to 65% so that it's a lower level of intensity. It's going to be less taxing on the body. We also may consider reducing the time. Perhaps we plan for 25 minutes. We may only do 15 minutes. Just track the time back, track the intensity back. So we are now working and we will train to maintain where we're at, but it isn't going to push us to stimulate growth and performance later on. When we're fatigued, it's more important just to consider we're on a maintenance training session so we don't fall backwards. We're not on a progressive training session. If we're doing resistance training, the thing we might consider is managing the volume and intensity of the workout. So for example, we may look to lower the weights by 10 or 15%, and we may also adjust the sets. So if we had four sets of 10 that we were going to work on, we might dial that back and only do two sets of 15. So again, it's well within our capacity, but it moves away from that higher intensity and volume. The other thing that we should be thinking about with regards to training with resistance work is we should think about managing the, the rating of perceived exertion, sometimes called RPE. And if we would normally work out at a eight out of 10, that's what we're aiming for at the end of each of our working sets. We'll probably look to dial that back again, maybe down to about a six so that it is providing some work to the tissues, but it is not stressing them to cause too much microtrauma in the muscle. Because we've dialed both our cardio back, we've dialed our resistance training back, that allows us some time to do something that's more restorative. And so this is where we might increase our warm-up and mobility time. And we may also increase our stretch down and wind down time at the end. And so you can see just by doing those few things, we're making the overall intensity and volume of the workout less difficult to allow us more restorative work either side. And this will help you still feel good. You'll get that endorphin lift. You'll feel great from having a workout. But you're not going to walk away feeling fatigued and tired and like you have to regenerate because your body was already there. We didn't need to add to that.
1: Yeah, that is such a great way to explain it. And I think that it's just so important that people give themselves some grace in this and that they realize that physiologically, you might not be there for a full on workout. And that's okay. Like it's okay to dial in, listen to what your body is saying, right and make changes based on that we don't have to go into the gym and follow every workout that we had planned to a T.
0: Absolutely, but one thing if I just add in there case is that if, if we've come in and we've rated ourselves sevens, eights, nines, out of 10 on that energy, ability to focus and enthusiasm for exercise, guess what? Today is a day we can go and hit it hard. Mm-hmm. So we need to be honest with ourselves. You know Sometimes it might just be, hmm, I'm just kind of not in the mood today, but actually, those things rate well. Well, usually what I find in that scenario is if you get into the gym and you start your warm-up. Usually by the time you've done five or 10 minutes of warm up, you're ready to go and you can feel that you're going to have a great session. So we need to be honest in how we rate ourselves.
1: Yeah, that's so true. And I think it just takes a level of understanding of yourself and actually being conscious about these things. Because a lot of people kind of go on autopilot once they're in the gym, right? And they're not taking the time to reflect and ask themselves some of the questions that you've explained to us. Yeah, they're missing a piece of, of what they could be doing for their body.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And, and if I can address any uh, fitness trainers or personal trainers who are listening here, um, I think also sometimes in the fitness industry, trainers just work with what they've got in the plan and they try to encourage and motivate. They feel their role is always to drive the client if they're feeling a bit off form. Trainers today need to be more informed than that. They should be asking those questions. What are your energy levels? How's your ability to focus? What's your enthusiasm for exercise? And if they then get a rating, then the trainer can be sensible enough to help adapt it for the client.
1: yes that's a great point let's shift again I want to talk about sleep chronotype this is a very interesting topic could you just explain to us what sleep chronotype is and then how you know what your personal chronotype is
0: so chronotyping is a is a an area of science where some people spend all of their careers focusing on so I I don't Pretend for a second that I am an elite expert in this particular field, but I know enough to, to to give you some answers. So what is chronotype? Well, I would define it as it's a propensity and a natural preference to sleep at certain times across a 24-hour cycle. All right, so some of us will have a tendency to feel that we can sleep a little earlier in an evening. Some of us feel like we want to stay up later, and then there'll be those who are in between. Now, traditionally, chronotyping tended to identify three main types. We have the early larks, the ones who are usually able to wake early, but also tend to run out of steam earlier in their day and go to bed sooner. We have the night owls who tend to stay up later and as a result struggle to get up in the morning. And then we have the intermediate types who range anywhere from one extreme to the other. Now, the other element of chronotype is that this is not fixed. So often we tend to think chronotype is a fixed type. So I have done a test, which you can do. There's something called a morning-eveningness questionnaire. Again, if you look it up online, you'll easily find it. It's a well-validated scientific test. And very quickly, with just a few questions, you can get a preference as to what your chronotype is. But this changes through different phases of our life. So if you just think about it, it probably makes a lot of sense. Anyone who's got young kids will tend to know that at earlier ages than being a teenager, so maybe from zero through to 10, 11, most kids are young larks. They wake early, they've uh, a zest for life, and they're ready to go fairly early. But also, young kids tend to tire sooner and they go to bed earlier. However, as we get to our teenage years, typically, teens shift in their chronotype. And most commonly, they move to become night owls. And so, they'll shift a couple of hours in their phase, and you tend to find now they really struggle to get up in the morning and guess what? They just, they come alive at 10 o'clock at night and they're ready to do all the cool stuff. And as parents, we're desperate for them to go to sleep. You can tell I'm spotted. I have some teens.
1: This is coming from experience for sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> absolutely. All right. Now, as we get into adulthood, it actually varies a bit. And then we tend to shift towards what is our natural genetic preferences. Some people will shift back to early larks. Some people will stay night owls. The only other time that that changes is as we get into our elderly years. What we tend to find is uh, the elderly population typically shift back to becoming early risers. They go back to a lark chronotype and they're early risers and then they tend to not last the day and they're falling asleep on the couch when they're watching the news at nine o'clock at night. (laughs) So did I miss something in what you asked or is there something else you'd like to to ask? No,
1: I think that you, you define chronotype well. And you, you can use the questionnaire, I guess, to um, tell which kind of chronotype that you are. My one burning question about chronotype is, let's say you're having a lot of trouble waking up in the morning. How do you know if that's your natural genetic chronotype kicking in or if it's just something about your habits and something that you need to shift in order to, for example, help yourself get to sleep earlier and sleep better? I have a lot of clients that ask this once I start talking about chronotype and they say, oh, okay, so I must be a night owl. But I used to think I was a night owl and then I shifted my habits a lot and my schedule shifted and Mm -hmm. now I feel much more alert in the morning and I feel much more energetic in the morning. So I'm not sure which one I am anymore. Mm -hmm. How do you tell which is which?
0: Well, I think that's great. Uh, What you did is a great example of exactly what people should be doing. Uh, I think first and foremost is to reemphasize that chronotype is not a fixed state. Mm -hmm. right, you can take night owls and you can help them train to become better in the mornings They might not ever truly love morning time But they can get to the point where they can function effectively because we've adjusted habits So the first thing I would do is take the quiz take a morning eveningness questionnaire and see where you sit So at least you now know where your preferences are based on your current position Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody did do that and they came out as a night owl based on current preferences Well, then what we would need to do is start to look at, is there any other things that are getting in the way? So we wouldn't then potentially need to address sleep duration. Are they getting enough sleep in the night to begin with? And then we would look at any sleep quality issues. Are they getting the seven or eight hours they need, but they're still feeling terrible in the mornings? Right, now let's start to look at, well, what of those aspects that we talked about earlier with regards to sleep quality? so latency, the ability to stay asleep and not wake up all the time, and then our daytime functioning, You might look at some of those things and determine, is there anything there that we should investigate further as to what is the root cause? Next of all, I would then start to identify any sleep disruptors. Is there anything that they do in their daily habits that is having a knock-on effect in a negative way upon their sleep at night? The classic ones are smoking, alcohol, and caffeine. If any of those habits are creeping into the day, particularly later in the day towards bedtime, then chances are those are things that are keeping them awake next I would then look to see if the person has any kind of wind down routine or are they literally on their computer and phone to the last gasp and then they try to just fall asleep in bed. So I would look to see whether there's stimulation um, and arousal from lots of different factors in their environment. That Um, one
1: makes a huge difference. I've noticed that personally. I had a great routine where I would turn off my phone. This was uh, like back at the end of 2019, kind of. I was Mm -hmm. really in the routine of turning my phone off an hour before bed and winding myself down and doing some reading, even by candlelight. And I've gotten way out of the habit of that. And I've been noticing this week, it takes me so much longer to fall asleep. That's because the blue light inhibits melatonin release in a significant amount, right?
0: It can do. And, and the, the great thing is that many of our devices uh, and, and gadgets today from laptops to phones and everything like that have the ability now to warm the screen. So you can begin to reduce the blue light. Although I have noticed that not, I've seen some devices that have that feature, but the blue light doesn't really get taken out very much. If you're using screens later in the evening, it should really start to go more of a yellowy-orange color. It shouldn't still look bright and clear. It it really shouldn't. And so I've seen some devices that you put it on maximum and it's still got plenty of blue light coming out. So we need to be mindful of that. And as you state, it does lower melatonin. And uh, that's not what we want because that'll mean that our sleep latency time increases. It takes us longer to drop off because we have to allow the body to begin to raise its melatonin level again. The other thing that which is an important aspect of this that is not usually talked about is this importance of mind stimulation and what's going on. You know, traditionally in the past, uh, you know, before we had all these gadgets, devices and everything to keep us going, evening times would have become family time. It would have been wind down time. We would have had lower level lights because we don't have all these high bright halogen lights. Most of the early bulbs were quite of a low warm glow and uh, we would have wound down at night, read some books, talked to friends and family. That would have been a typical evening. So our mind stimulation levels would drop and we'd go much more into parasympathetic mode where we're resting, digesting and socializing. Whereas today, too many of us bring our work and busy lives home with us, where we are doing everything later and later into our evenings. And even the entertainment is becoming much more intense and stimulating if we're watching television. And so we have to be mindful of that, and we have to help allowing some clearance between what we do and what others are doing. I heard a great example just the other day from Dr. Michael Grandner, who is a great sleep scientist. And he talked about if you're driving a car, I don't know, 70 miles an hour, and you need to make a right turn, you wouldn't maintain a speed of 70 miles an hour and then make the right turn. You're going to miss your, your exit. So he said what we really need to do is to apply the brakes and slow down so that we can make that turn. Now, that right turn is signposted sleep. So in order to make that turn into sleep, we have to slow down. We have to allow the body time to wind down, to allow melatonin to rise, to bring our levels of alertness and excitement down in order to allow sleep and its natural easy relaxing feelings to wave over us and to allow us to make the right turn and go to sleep.
1: Yeah, so that makes total sense.
0: But it doesn't mean that's what we do when right. life is in the way. It but it makes a lot of sense.
1: Right, or we have one final email that we just feel like we need to answer right before bed and you know and then we do it because we have our, it with us. Yeah, exactly. that's definitely a, it's definitely a shift in habits it needs to happen and it needs to happen on purpose deliberately.
0: Exactly. Now, the other thing I often say, uh, blessed to my wonderful wife, but I often say to her, is the person on the end of that email seriously sitting waiting for you at 1130 at night because they're about to reply? I says, I doubt it very much. That email will be there in the morning. Just make a note so you don't forget. It's as simple as that. Or mark it again as unread so it's still in your inbox when you go back in the morning. There's things that we can do to manage it. It's it's, it's our own need that we have to respond to things urgently. So often at that time of night, they're just not urgent.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the other things that we can look at, of course, are sleep environment. We can manage that. We can also look at light exposure, as you've well talked about, and bring those levels down at night, as well as ensuring we're getting good light exposure in the morning. Now, when we've applied some of those things, then what I would do is go back and reevaluate the person. Let's reevaluate with your chronotype quiz again and see once we've done this now for a couple of weeks, how do you feel now compared to how you did originally? And then you can compare the two and go, most often you'll see that there's been some shift in how they feel with regards to their chronotype. And it helps people realize that chronotype isn't fixed, it's fluid. And we can adjust to some degree to have our preferences fall more in line with what we are required to do on a daily basis.
1: That's awesome. Taking melatonin, does that have any effect in helping you fall asleep? Let's say you were on screens or watching something really stimulating couple minutes before and you're trying to go to sleep right away. Mm -hmm. Does taking melatonin actually work or is it just a placebo effect?
0: It's a great question. Now, (laughs) I kind of want to preempt this. I will answer your question. I'm not being being a politician on you. I I kind of (laughs) feel sometimes when we're struggling with sleep, our first port of call is, can I get a supplement to help me with that? And I think that's because we're stuck in this sort of allopathic approach of I'm ill, I need a Something to help me. I need a drug or I need a pill to pop. And the reality is is there's so many things as we've already talked about that can address sleep issues before we would ever need to worry about do I need melatonin. All right. So there's so many behavioral things, learning our chronotype, looking at sleep disruptors, looking at our habits, all of this stuff around light, scheduling, everything like that. We can deal with all of that first. And then if we're still having issues, right, well then let's look for some additional help. And to be honest, I wouldn't go to melatonin as a first protocol. Right? I'm not against it. It can be helpful, and there are studies to prove this. But uh, I would actually go to some lighter, easier uh, supplements before I went hitting the hormones. And the reason why I say that is that hormones are rarely affected uh, as an individual component of the body. If I change one hormone, it usually has a knock on effect to other hormones that sometimes is positive, sometimes is not. And so when we take melatonin, it's going to have a knock on effect upon other hormones, namely, for example, cortisol. We talked about melatonin and cortisol being antagonists. Mm -hmm. So if I'm taking supplemental melatonin, which is driving my melatonin levels much higher than they would normally be, then that's going to have a knock-on effect to giving me more sluggish cortisol in the morning. And I'm trying to feel energetic and I kind of feel tired. And one of the side effects many people talk about is feeling a little weary in the morning still. They haven't quite got that out of their system. And that's because of its antagonistic effects on cortisol. Other supplements you might look to take first would... For me, it would include things like magnesium, getting a nice bioavailable source of magnesium, such as magnesium glycinate or bisglycinate, nice bioavailable uh, sources that we're able to get hold of. Taking that an hour before bed and to see how that helps. Looking generally an adult doses would be anywhere from two to 400 milligrams of magnesium at night. And then uh, that then plays a part in our natural production of serotonin and melatonin, which is why we might start with that and allow the body to work with the minerals to begin with. It also is great for relaxing muscles, so it has a beneficial effect there. Then, if we find the magnesium hasn't had the desired effect, then we may potentially step it up a little bit and we might use a hormone, not a hormone, sorry, a supplement called 5-HTP or 5-hydroxytryptophan. And this is just an extract from the Grafona seed. What that does is it also plays a part in helping to convert more of our serotonin into melatonin, so it encourages the natural pathways of melatonin production. One thing to be wary of with 5-HTP is it sometimes can lead to what they call serotonin rebound. When we take more 5-HTP, people often get really good deep sleep. So that first half of the night where we get most of our deep sleep, they'll feel like they've slept really well. But then as we then rebound into the morning where we get more dream state sleep or REM sleep, what we tend to find is those dreams can often become really vivid You know, they can become really realistic and you often find people wake up feeling like they just had these crazy dreams, you know, sometimes even almost acting them out because they felt so real. So if you're getting that, then chances are you've either not coping well with 5-HTP or perhaps you took too much and you should lower the dosage. So that's something to consider. And if I've done both of those and I'm doing all the behavioral stuff and there's still some issues there, then my next step would be let's take some melatonin. (laughs) Now your original question was, is it Does it work or is there a placebo effect? Well, I'll refer you to a meta analysis that was done in the Nutrition Journal in December of 2014. It was called The Effectiveness of Melatonin for Promoting Healthy Sleep. And this focused primarily on healthy adults rather than people who have diagnosed sleep problems. They looked at quite a lot of studies. I think they selected 34 in the end. And of that, uh, they looked at 12 studies that particularly targeted healthy adult volunteers. 12 of those studies, eight of them showed a beneficial effect using melatonin, particularly with improving sleep onset latency, people were able to fall asleep sooner. And four of them showed no effect, but none of them showed a negative effect. It was just four didn't show anything and eight showed positive. They then also looked at other studies that looked more specifically at sleep onset and five out of seven studies showed that melatonin was beneficial. And then they looked at those that addressed daytime sleepiness or feeling fatigue during the day when we're awake. And they found that melatonin helped four out of five of those studies. It was found to be beneficial as well. Now, overall, they concluded the meta-analysis by saying that melatonin, that they could recommend melatonin as a strategy to help improve sleep. But they did state that the recommendation was only a weak one. They didn't say, oh, it's really, this is the answer, which actually I think is quite wise. Now, a little uh, side note to this is that when we looked at the dosages of melatonin across all those 34 studies, they were vastly different. They varied from one milligram up to 10 milligrams. And so because there was such variation in dosage, you're going to get a variation in effect right from the start. So that's something to take out of that study to just be mindful of. But the other thing to obviously be mindful of is that all of the behavioral things that we've talked about can be quite powerful in affecting our sleep. So in a traditional study, you wouldn't want to affect all of those things because you're trying to see whether or not the medication or the supplement has an effect on its own without anything else. So in these studies and trials, they wouldn't have been asking them to do all of these additional changes to schedule and to light and to sleep environment. They will have just said, take melatonin and change nothing else. And so if someone's having lots of sleep problems and they don't change any of those behavioral things, taking melatonin on its own is likely to have only a fairly weak effect, as they quite rightly recommended. That's why I would always say we have to do it in the right order. Address the lifestyle factors, then maybe start with some magnesium. Then if that needs to go up a bit, we can then try some 5-hydroxytryptophan. And only then, once everything else is in place, right, let's now drop the 5-HTP and start taking some melatonin straight.
1: Awesome. I'm so glad you answered that question that way because I feel like like you were alluding to in the beginning, People are so quick to look for the quick fix, the easy thing, the thing where they don't have to adjust their schedule because that takes thought and time and effort. And maybe it takes affecting you know, their partner if they have a certain routine that they always do together at night. So it's such a great point that can we actually address the things that are going on lifestyle-wise first, and then we can talk about what can you take. But Clients are always very quick to say, oh, I think I'm going to start taking melatonin or magnesium because I can't sleep. But they're not talking about any of those other things.
0: Agreed. But I, I do think that's still something we must be mindful of because we can play devil, devil's advocate here and flip it the other way around and say, well, if we, if we make the changes that we require of an individual to improve their sleep so difficult because we list all of these hundreds of things they can change, then the hurdle is too big and they won't do it anyway. So the reality is, is we have to meet the, the person where they're at. You know, we'll find out what the client can and is willing to do and apply and the things that they believe they will be successful at. Even if, let's say, we came up with 20 things on a strategy that we wanted that client to change to improve their overall sleep, and then the client only identified two that they felt were realistic right now. Well, I would back that person to do those two things and let's see what success comes from that. And even if the changes or the improvements are only small, then those small improvements encourage them to add an extra one to the list. And then we add an extra one and then that starts to feel normal and habitual. And we start to habit stack where we put one on top of the other until maybe over the course of six months, we now have the client doing all of them and actually they love it and they feel great. Yeah. But if we try to face up to all 20 at the start, you know, there's, there's almost no way that's going to happen and they just feel like a failure.
1: Yeah, for sure. And that applies to everything, any behavioral change that as trainers, we're trying to coach people to make in their lives, right? Fitness, nutrition, sleep, mindfulness, meditation, whatever habit they're trying to implement. I think that that philosophy absolutely applies. Well said. Okay, Ben. I have a couple of listener questions so people are very curious about some of these thoughts about sleep so just to round out this hour with you I would love to ask a couple of those questions that I thought were particularly compelling if that's great with you
0: sure it is bring it on
1: (laughs) okay Jess is asking is it possible to oversleep and how can you identify if you are
0: yes absolutely absolutely It's completely possible to oversleep. And actually, when we look at data around undersleeping and oversleeping, and we look at overall health and well being, we'll find that it's kind of like a a U shaped curve. So we see more ill health in underslept people and in overslept people. But actually, the optimal health is in that sweet middle zone. All right. And so if we are oversleeping, that would typically be defined as people who are regularly sleeping more than nine hours per night. We do also tend to find that there are health problems associated. uh, with, with the lives of those people. Now, I would suggest in many cases, it's not the sleep that's causing the health problems in those people, but it tends to be the other way around. Mm-hmm. 15% of all sleep problems occur because of an existing medical condition. And so we may find that someone already has some ill health, which is leading to sleep problems. And some of those problems can be oversleeping, All right, You know, if you get somebody who's suffering from extreme fatigue or has some health problems that, that relate to that, or adapt energy levels, then we may find that those people are oversleeping Mm. and as a result, often feeling lousy. Another side to oversleeping tends to be, which is probably more common, is where people have underslept all week and now they don't have to work at the weekend. And so now they try to catch up. And so their body's so fatigued because they built up this debt all week long that they then sleep nine, 10 hours on Friday, Saturday night. Right. Now, there have been some studies that have looked at that, and they've, they've pretty much shown that that's not how it works. We do not see a, a recovery of the hours lost. We don't see that. And as a general rule, it appears that it takes about twice as much sleep to make up for the hours that were lost. So what I mean by that is if someone was an hour short for five days of the week, they would now be five hours short. Well, it's going to take a gradual replication of an, an additional 10 hours to gain back the lost health benefits. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So it's so hard to make back yeah. this quote unquote sleep debt on the weekend. It's not really exactly. possible.
0: I mean, not, you can't add five hours each night. Right. You know, if, you, <laughs> if you were getting six hours during the week and then you try to sleep 11 hours Friday and Saturday, it's, it's almost not going to happen. And you'd probably feel terrible for doing that because mm-hmm. the other thing that you do is you totally throw out your sleep schedule. And your melatonin doesn't know when it's meant to be up or when it's meant to be down because you've just had these two days that have, are way out of schedule and the body's rhythms get thrown out. And then on Monday, what do you suffer from? You suffer from what we might call social jet lag, right? Where you've been out late with friends and you slept in like crazy. And then on Monday, when you have to get up at the normal working hour, now you're really tired. And so it, it tends to become this method of restoration that actually kicks us in the butt on a Monday morning
1: yeah it speaks to the importance of the consistency in a sleep schedule and regulating your circadian rhythm and how important that is absolutely i had lots of people asking about the best way to optimize sleep if you're a shift worker or at least balance out the negative side effects of doing shift work and i some of the jobs that these people are in paramedics firefighters nurses are all wondering, like, yes, I know I can't be on a consistent sleep schedule, but what can I do if I'm a shift worker to negate those negative side effects?
0: It's, it's a tough one. Uh, unfortunately, just to, just to state the statistics, uh, shift work is perhaps one of the most challenging um, problems in relation to overall health in, in sleep and circadian rhythm. Uh, and usually the long-term prognosis for people on shift work is not great. It, it really does shorten life. That's tough because often the jobs, as you're referring to, that people are doing to do shift work are often real essentials. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, they're
0: things that that are services that require 24-hour attention. And so somebody has to work that. My first bit of advice would be to determine with your employer whether it's possible to have longer blocks on a specific shift. I say that because I'm aware of some shift workers, for example, in health services who having to do maybe two or three nights on one shift and then it, it shifts to another shift every few nights. You know, they might get a couple of days off, which they kind of try to recover, and then they're on a different shift and a couple of days off and a different shift. And so the change of shift is too much. Right. And that changing of shift is the battle. So, for example, if someone had to do night work, it would be better that they did two weeks straight of night work rather than night work, day work every couple of days. Does that make Got sense?
1: It. Yeah, for sure. Two weeks, like for example, two weeks straight of night work and then maybe two full weeks of day work. So that way they're Absolutely. only making that shift one time in the month versus multiple.
0: Exactly. Now that's the that's the real battle with shift work is adjusting to a, to a schedule and, and to adapt your circadian rhythm and then having to do it again so quickly. And anybody who's ever made some flights uh, that cover multiple time zones, will feel that the, how difficult jet lag is. Well, essentially, what we're asking a shift worker to do is to go through jet lag all the time. That would be the first thing I would do is, is investigate, ask the question, is it possible that I can do more shifts in this particular pattern before you change me up? And if mm-hmm. that's possible, great, because that allows you more time to adapt. Now, usually, as a rule with jet lag, we would say that for every hour or time zone that you've crossed, you would normally need to give about one day's worth of time to adjust your body to that time zone. So, if somebody's gone from a six till two o'clock shift, and now they're doing a two till 10 o'clock shift, well, they've had to shift eight hours. And so, we're talking about seven to eight days to adjust to that new pattern. And you can see why that's so damaging when they're shifting every three or four days to a new pattern. If they can stay on that pattern for a while, then their body gets back in sync and they can have a few days where they feel all right at work rather than mm-hmm. feeling tired. Right. The other thing I would say with those essential services, you know, police force, fire, medical services, things like that, is so often the work they have to do really requires energy and attention. And so t- a tired workforce is not a good workforce. Now, for those who are having to make those changes, the key is is can you preempt the change? Often people who do shift work will have a few days in between the end of one shift and the start of a new shift pattern. What I would be saying is as soon as they end that last shift before the shift pattern changes, we've got to start thinking like the new shift pattern. All right. So rather than having lots of sleeping in to try and recover, which just throws them off and then they have to readjust again, if they're going from mornings to nights. We're immediately at the end of that shift thinking, right, as soon as I've slept, the next day i'm now thinking and operating like the late shift pattern i'm going to gradually adjust towards that pattern so we might gradually move bedtime and wake time towards that pattern we may also consider things like adjusting light exposure to be more in keeping with that nighttime pattern mm-hmm. and we may also start to adjust our meal times to be more in consistency with that pattern and then also exercise all of these type of things are signals and cues to the body that we are needing to adapt to this particular wake and sleep time. And by doing that, even if you just have two or three days between your shift patterns, that can actually help you adjust to that pattern of work sooner. But it takes a little thought.
1: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like this group of workers could definitely use some education from someone that could give them the specifics on how to sort of structure their day when they have to switch from one shift to the other.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And I even think that from a uh, employer perspective, I, I think they have a duty of care. Mm-hmm. And too too many employers are unaware that this is such a big issue. You know, They have a duty of care to be sure that their workers understand the most effective ways to adapt themselves from one shift pattern to another in order to ensure they have an effective workforce. Because if they don't do that, surely they're losing money because they have an ineffective workforce who's struggling to stay focused, who's tired. The chance of error is much higher all of those things are going to be negative to that employer's output and their productivity. And so why would you not invest
1: in that? I totally agree. My final listener question is one that I have definitely been wondering about for a while too. Is it good or healthy to track your sleep with a Fitbit or some other sleep tracker? Like what limitations do those things actually have? Are they actually helpful? Because there are definitely mixed opinions floating around out there.
0: It's a great question. My initial thoughts would would be that yes, it can be helpful. However, we need to take caution. Many of these uh, trackers are made by companies who are not sleep experts. They are engineers who are very good at identifying and and utilizing modern technology. And so they, of course, because of time and investment and development, are going to say that these things are brilliant because they're trying to sell their product. Now, I'm not saying that they're not good. What I would say is that scientifically, the number of devices that have been truly validated and checked for accuracy and consistency is actually quite small. There are some that have, and I don't want to talk out brands or anything like that, but there are some devices that have had scientific validation and of course are used in scientific studies. And so therefore they have a good level of reliability. In particular, you know, if I'm wearing some kind of watch or band or device or a ring, there's, you know, there's lots of types. There's even ones that you can place on your mattress that you lie on top of and it picks up movement and heat and heart rates and things like that. So wow, there's a, a I number of different that one. And there's ones cool. that you can put on, your, put on your head as well. So there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a number of different types. The key thing is most of them show accuracy in identifying sleep. So when you fall asleep, many of them are pretty accurate, up in the 90% and above accuracy for identifying when you've fallen asleep the larger majority of them are not so great at identifying when you wake up. And so therefore you get a little bit of disparity in how long you've actually slept in the results because they tend to be you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes off identifying when you actually wake up. The other side to this is that when you begin to look at sleep phases, which is what most people want to know and quite often these devices connect with your phone or something and they show you these lovely charts that make you look like, yeah, look how much deep sleep I got, look how much REM sleep I got. In almost all cases, in comparison to uh, being tested in a sleep lab, many of these devices are pretty poor at identifying phases of sleep. And so that's usually where I say to people, you know, you've got to take that with a bit of a pinch of salt. You know, the phases, not so great. However, sleep time, you know, in, if you buy a good device that's been validated, then you have something that can be a great tool to help you more accurately identify sleep time. And so I would encourage you to read carefully what these things are claiming for, look for ones that have been independently tested. And usually when they have, they will shout it from the rooftop because it's they've spent time and money to make that happen.
1: Yeah.
0: And um, the ones that don't have any individual independent validation, I uh, just go a little bit careful of and, uh, and maybe choose another brand.
1: Awesome. I think you also have to be so careful because a lot of people when they get their results in the morning, they don't realize how much what they're seeing is affecting how they're going about their day, right? There's a massive sure. placebo effect there too. So if your device inaccurately told you that you only got 20 minutes of deep sleep and you say, oh my goodness, I must you know, not be restored, this is gonna be a tough day. Well, that's gonna be a self-prescribed tough day. So we really have to be careful with how much we're relying on data and stats to tell us how we slept or how we feel.
0: Absolutely. And if sleep is really that important to you, it isn't that big a job to do a sleep diary. Mm-hmm. If you take a sleep diary and you, usually they require you to answer a few questions just before you go to sleep at night on a piece of paper, not a device, because we don't want the light. Uh, and in the morning, you'd, be, uh, you'd have to re- answer a few questions. It takes a few minutes either side of you going to bed and waking up. And then you have two forms of evidence to look at your sleep. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate what you said, though, also about us becoming over analytical and hard on ourselves because of data. We still have to pay attention to the way we feel, eat, exercise, work. You know, there's so many other tenets of life. Sleep is just one of them. It is important, but, you know, it isn't the be all and end all. If we're doing lots of other good things to, to promote our health, and sometimes our sleep isn't quite right, hey, that's okay, it happens, that's life. The body is quite capable of making adjustments. And every now and again, if our sleep falls out of, out of pattern or we have a few bad nights, it's okay. We can restore that and get back on board. The issue is when we have long-term chronic sleep problems, you know, that is something that we have to rein in and, and to address because it will have a more significant impact. So let's not be over analytical on ourselves or be too hard on ourselves. Let's do our best because if sleep becomes a stress, then guess what it does? It stops us going to sleep because we're getting anxious every night trying to go to sleep. So it's important that it doesn't do that.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you putting that all into perspective for us. Okay, Ben, we've talked about so much stuff in this hour. It's been awesome. I do have one final question for you because I ask everyone this question when they come on the podcast. Sure. What makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning?
0: <laughs> that's a that's a good question. I don't think there's one thing. That's the challenge. You know, there's lots of things that make me excited to get out of the bed. Uh, you know, quite often I have projects on at work, things that I'm doing that uh, I'm, I'm excited to get done and I, and I want to get at it. say more often, to be honest, is probably family. It's probably friends. It's probably getting outside into, into nature, going and having a workout. I I prefer to train early. I find Mm -hmm. that tends to set me up for my day. So it it tends to be a number of different things, depending on which day it is. You know, there's no one thing that drives me. And I I hope that that's healthy, that there's multiple things that, uh, that uh, get me going in the morning and get me up for a, a new day.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. If listeners want to learn more about you or learn more from you, um, I know you work with Nordic fitness education and you guys provide lots of courses. If they want to find those or want to hear more from you, how do they go about doing that?
0: Well, if they, uh, probably the best place is to visit uh, our website, www.nordicfitnesseducation.com. You can also find us on lots of social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Uh, just put in the handle Nordic Fitness Education, and you'll come across us. Uh, and, you know, by all means, please look up our course, the Sleep Recovery Specialist. And, uh, you know, we are more than happy to uh, hook up with a, a small discount code for your listeners. Anybody who'd like to, to do that short online course and to really learn how to master and strategize effective sleep, then uh, by all means, uh, take a look and uh, we'd welcome you as a student.
1: Awesome. That would be great. And we will definitely link that up in the show notes. You forgot to mention your podcast, which I love, but you're the host of the Fit to Succeed podcast. And you guys talk about lots of great stuff, including sleep and lots of aspects of health and wellness. So
0: thank you. Thank you for including that as well. Yes, indeed. Check out the podcast. Uh, We have lots of fun on there with lots of good guests, just as, as you do, Casey.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Ben.
0: Cheers, then. Thanks, Casey. Have a good day.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? Remember, we release a new episode every Monday morning. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and CastBox. If you're liking what you're hearing, please rate and review the show. Every review really does go a long way. I appreciate every single one of them so, so much. If you're liking what you're hearing on the show, please share it with a family member or friend that you think could benefit from listening to the things that we talk about on How Do You Feel? All right, guys, that's all I have for you this week. Make sure you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.